This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and AJ Bell, and joining me today with his debut podcast appearance is Tom Sieber, Deputy Editor at Shares. Hello. So this week, we're going to look at the sell-off in US tech stocks. We'll talk about companies getting back on their feet and ask if businesses that benefited from lockdown measures can sustain that sales momentum. We'll also talk to Andrew Vaughan, who runs top performing investment fund Free Spirits. And we've got some interesting personal finance news on mortgages and current accounts. First up, let's chat about what's been happening on the markets over the past week. Well, I mean, it's... Uh terrible place to be if you're a tech investor um i guess yeah. in relative terms you'll have made loads of money this year hopefully um and so the, the sort of the last week has been very miserable but you know even after accounting for those um the setback you know these tech stocks are still sitting on very large returns here today games yeah i mean it, it it's although it feels like the sell-off's almost been as rapid and and sort of had the same um velocity is the 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 kind of rally i don't i don't think that's quite the case yet is it so and um, that's a really good point that you know the tech companies are still sitting on on, on significant gains yeah i mean so in the last week we've <coughs> had the nasdaq index has fallen 10 percent the s p 500 index is down seven percent but if you look on individual stocks some of the more popular names the sell-off has been a bit more brutal so tesla yeah is down 26% in a week. Apple's down 14, Microsoft is down 13, and Amazon's down 11. So, you know, these are, these are large movements downwards, sure. but I don't think it's quite um, panic territory here. And I think it's, there's several reasons why the, you know, the sector is sort of wobbling a bit. I mean, there's plenty of bad news bubbling in the background. Um, last week, the asset manager Bailey Gifford, who's been a very long-term shareholder of Tesla, sold a bit of its stake because simply the stock was becoming far too dominant in its portfolios. And I wonder whether some people thought, okay, maybe that's a signal that you know if they're getting out and perhaps taking some money off the table, we should do the same. Uh, we've also had uh, SoftBank as well, the Japanese investment bank, as um, it turns out it's been using various sort of complicated derivatives products to to place bets on the US tech space this year. And that perhaps was creating a bit of frenzy. And um, again, some people are sort of saying, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a bit of profit, uh, potentially. So um, you've had some pullback here, but I I just don't think um, this is the start of a broader market correction. I can't be. I can't say for certain. Doesn't have that feel to it, does it? And I mean, with Tesla as well, there was the the thing about them not making the S and P five hundred, which obviously disappointed people. So there was, there were kind of other circumstances there that that affected the share price beyond just the sort of wider sell off in tech. Yes, I mean it's in other parts of the market. We we've seen a fair bit of corporate news, uh, certainly on the UK market to. Um, keep investors very busy. And one of the things I thought was quite interesting is, is this idea of companies getting back on their feet. So yeah, Fevertree came out and said, um, it's had a very sort of strong performance for, for sales at home. This is what it calls the off trade. So if you go and buy um, drinks from supermarkets and convenience stores. So that's done very well. It's helped to mitigate sort of the impact of selling fewer mixer drinks to restaurants and pubs and hotels but you know the, the ceo tim warlow's basically come out and said it, um, the performance so far this year has given him confidence that he reckons the company will exit the crisis in an even stronger position than they entered it so um you know it's it's and it's not the only one so there's a little tiny um construction equipment services company called samero um it's basically said that during the crisis it had objectives to look after staff protect cash protect profits um, but continue to do product development and, and it's done all that as it's come out with decent sales performance and, and dividends are back dividends are back again at um, ds smith as well this is the, the corrugated sort of box specialist um, and jd sports has also come out and said well you know we're, we're feeling strong enough here 
to reinstate earnings guidance. And I think that was a key thing, wasn't it? The earnings guidance coming back in itself. I mean, they, they haven't resumed dividends, but which is notable. But I think it's one of a number of companies that are at least feeling confident enough to tell people what they think is going to happen for the remainder of the year. And that was absent for a long time, wasn't it? So it at least gives investors a bit, you know, a bit of a, a kind of an insight into what's going on rather than them just sort of being a bit in the dark, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we've talked about on the podcast before about the idea of um, companies feeling a bit more confident to, to reintroduce earning guidance and, and what that means and stuff. And that really helps investors make a bit more informed decisions. And so I think that even if companies are reporting weakish numbers now, um, investors are, are welcoming sort of any sign of stability. And, and, we, and we saw this actually, another one caught my eye was Royal Mail, where it came out and said, you know, we've done very well with parcels during lockdown. Um, and so it, it sort of increased its revenue guidance. But actually, I was very surprised to see the market didn't latch on to the fact that it's still going to be reporting very big losses. And, and, and beyond that, there's still so many problems. It seems yeah. The business seems to be desperate to change its working practices, but everything seems to need sort of consultation with the unions. It just seems to be the, the unions are blocking everything. Um, and, it, and, and you still can't get over the fact competition. I don't know what it's like, Tom, with you, but you know where I live, I, I could just stay here working from home. But look out the window, about once every 10 minutes, there'll be a delivery. Van. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, so whether, and, whether it's, you know, it could be DPD, it could be, yeah. it could be Royal Mail, but if it's telling you there's plenty of competition out there. So whilst Royal Mail's had a brilliant time with parcel uh, you know volumes going really through the roof it's not the only one that's doing well and therefore it's not necessarily going to be an easy ride no and it, and it obviously has the letters side which is in sort of a structural decline really isn't it so people just aren't sending letters in the same way that they were and obviously you can't send out marketing material in the same way that you could before they changed the regulations there so it, there's there's that is kind of you know dragging on the business even if the parcels business is doing sort of relatively well yeah and so the other the other sector that caught my eye was house builders so tom tell us what why are house builders having a very troubled time on the stock market this week so what's happened with the house builders is that the competition and markets authority and um, the regulator has launched enforcement action over leasehold properties um, there's no definitive judgment as, as yet in terms of kind of wrongdoing, but there are four companies which seem to be in the firing line um, and they're four of the UK's largest house builders. So it's, it's Barrett, it's Countryside Properties, Persimmon and Taylor Wimpy. Um, people may have some direct experience of this kind of issue or they, they probably will have seen stories in the newspaper. But the kind of gist of it is that people have bought a new home and they bought it on a leasehold basis, probably not realising that's the case, or certainly that's, that is sort of something that the CMA is concerned about. And then they've been stuck with this issue of increasing ground rents. Um, quite often the rights to those ground rents have been sold off to third parties. And that led to kind of unexpected costs um, and it made it difficult in some cases to sell homes on. So, you know, it really put the, the home purchaser in a really tricky position and it, Government talked about banning this practice outright in 2017, but that hasn't happened yet. It feels like the CMA are sort of picking up the mantle in a way, and they have said, you know, they haven't kind of prejudged the outcome of the, the investigation, but they could take the, the quartet to court or they could force them to change the way they do business in some way. And I thought the warning that the, um, the chief executive of the CMA gave felt quite pointed. He, he said, everyone involved in selling leasehold homes should take note. If our investigation demonstrates that there's been misleading or unfair contract terms, these will not be tolerated. Um, so he's taking quite a sort of strong line there. Um, and I think until this has been resolved in one way or another, it's going to weigh on these companies and to an extent the wider sector, given the CMA actually wrote to other operators to get them to sort of review their practices. And nobody's saying it's, it's on this scale yet or, or that it will be, but it has some echoes of the PPI scandal, which obviously dogged the banks when, you know, they were coming out of the financial crisis. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah. I, I think, I think perhaps what we need is for some bright analyst, at a stockbroker investment bank to, to try and work out the worst case scenario, what you know, if they were fined or had to change business practices, what does that really mean? And then they can get an idea of 
maybe uh, you know could you price in this bad news and where would that then take the shares but i think until we get um that sort of information which i certainly haven't seen i don't know whether listeners I might have come across this but i haven't seen it either and i think that's a good point we don't know quite what the scale of this is i mean if you look at the the market reaction they were down you know considerably but not to the extent that obviously the suggested people were super super concerned at this stage so you're right it is probably too early to say but i think it's just the uncertainty about what will happen is is not helpful so one of the other stocks uh probably worth having a chat about on the podcast this week is halfords which seems to be experiencing yet another shift in customer behavior so tom what's going on there um and i wondered if does does halfords situation apply to other companies that initially benefited from change to society earlier this year yeah thanks dan i mean as you mentioned halfords this week warned that profits would fall over the winter as demand for bikes kind of levels off or, or begins to wane and it i mean it looks like we're a nation of fair weather cyclists which you know having experienced cycling in the winter i can completely understand but it, it's interesting partly because halfords was one of these kind of perceived covid winners um particularly early on you know people were doing their daily allotted exercise on a bike so they wanted a new bike and, and people were sort of pedaling to work to avoid commuting on public transport so again they wanted a new bike to do that with and that that obviously led to a lot of demand for Halfords. Um, I mean one thing to know is that even when it had this big surge in sales Halfords you know it, that created issues of its own because of the sort of the very rapid nature of this demand coming through it was it was hard for Halfords to keep up. And another sort of early beneficiary of COVID that had perhaps a sort of similar problem in a way was the supermarkets where they rallied quite significantly in the early stages of lockdown. I think they were perceived as being relatively resilient to COVID and also, you know, you'd seen this big wave of panic buying. So people were, well, you know, they're going to made out very well because they've got massive bumper sales in a very short period of time. But the kind of net net benefit of that was, kind of wiped out because there were a lot of extra costs involved you know the supermarkets needed to adapt they needed to bring in hygiene and social distancing measures because a lot more people were ordering online they had to invest in increasing their capacity there so you know that you saw that their kind of the, the initial share price price sort of rally for the supermarkets kind of died away a bit partly because of those issues and actually when you look at it the real star of the grocery sector has been Ocado which is up more than 80 percent year to date and i feel like this there's a bit of a kind of dividing line between the businesses which saw a boost due to kind of short-term factors associated with the pandemic that maybe weren't going to extend beyond that and those which are kind of seeing a benefit because of an acceleration of trends which were already in motion before coronavirus hit um, and in carlo's case i guess that was the gradual shift to doing the weekly shop online which suddenly a lot more people were forced down this route during lockdown and I guess, uh, you know, sticking with it because it's more convenient and it's it's quicker. Um, and the market clearly seems to think that more global supermarkets are going to use what Arcado offers is, is essentially a kind of out of the box solution for running an online grocery service. And it feels like more, you know, more supermarkets may may well be interested in that, given given the sort of what's happening there. Um, video conferencing specialist Zoom, that was a big early winner. Obviously, everybody's familiar with sort of doing zoom quizzes with family and work etc and if you look at the share prices it followed the the rally in us tech stocks all the way up and it's beginning to sort of return to earth now as we discussed you know that that's not um confined to zoom alone that's happened to the rest of the technology sector but it, you do kind of question whether will people still be doing you know socializing and, and weekly quizzes over zoom now that we're kind of out of the, the very strict lockdown and will businesses really you know stick with such high levels of video conferencing once you don't have the same limitations on distant you know the need to distance and and travel restrictions um and uh, another kind of early covid winner the takeaway firms um who benefited from people being unable to go out to eat they um lost quite a you've seen sort of just eat takeaway and domino's pizza they've lost quite a lot of the early momentum they enjoyed from this effect and you know the pandemic didn't change the fact that 
Just Eat Takeaway operates in a highly competitive market. You know, Amazon is ominously parking its blank tanks on that lawn. And Domino's has, you know, a difficult relationship with its franchisees, longstanding. And um, one area where, you know, there might be a bit more of a lasting effect from COVID is in a focus on health and hygiene. And that would play into the hands of Reckitt and Kisa, which is another big stock that's done very well. It's up sort of 20% year to date, which for a FTSE 100 company, seems you know like a, a pretty impressive move and in july first half results flags kind of increased confidence in in the delivery of its medium-term goals and it's under a new you know under a new management and and it's got a sort of turnaround strategy there as well so um yeah so that it, it's interesting it's sort of divergent fortunes really for for those businesses that did did so well kind of early on so just talking of Picardo, i mean there's, there's another company that's coming to the stock market very soon called the hut and i and i wonder whether investors getting particularly excited about um this business because it's almost like it's doing an acardo um by that means it's got um, a technology platform which um it hopes other companies will use essentially the, the hut is a it's a very, it's a bit of a strange business. I must admit. Yeah. I mean, Tom, have you heard, do you know where this? this yeah, a little bit. Tom? I mean, I, I was thinking sort of um, when it, when the IPO was announced that we used to run a feature quite a long time ago, seven or eight years ago in the magazine, where we we looked at sort of the best of Britain in terms of stocks, and we used to go to different parts of the UK, um, and you know. One of those was the Northwest, and that, although I didn't speak to the hut at the time, it's a private company, obviously. But it was interesting. It it came up a number of times when I was talking to other businesses, so it was well known as being kind of a bit of a, a kind of I guess a star in the Northwest. They, you know, they, there was clearly some excitement about it even then. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I've I've seen it, it talked about lots before about coming to market, and actually there was an yeah. article in the um, Guardian recently sort of saying that actually they, they uncovered a bit of a, a fraud, which is why it sort of delayed the original IPO plans. Um, you know, it, it, it's definitely coming now and it's coming in, in a matter of days. So it, essentially, if I, I'll, I'll just quickly explain to, to listeners exactly what the business does and, and then I can sort of put it in some context of why uh, it's got a sort of an Ocado spin to it. So yeah. it, it's about 40% of sales come from um, beauty products so it's got a, a portfolio of websites including look fantastic and glossy box which sell hundreds of different third-party beauty brands um, and then it trades as well under the my protein uh, brand as well so here it's selling nutrition products so it's it's believed to be the largest online direct to consumer sports nutrition brand in the world so that's about 36 percent of its sales um, and then it also owns um, some lifestyle luxury products and, and bizarrely a country club and, a, and it's got a hotel as well, which is about 11%. And that's a, essentially, and then that leaves this gap of just over 10% of sales come from something called THG Ingenuity. So this is um, a technology platform that helps brands online with their logistics and marketing support. So essentially it allows companies to sell direct to consumers quickly and without having to spend loads of money on sort of capital expenditure. And it's, it's signed up uh, Nestle, um, and Procter Gamble, and it's just done deal with home base here. So I think what people are looking at is this part of the business. So it's tiny as a percentage of current sales in the future. Is this going to be like the go-to platform or companies that essentially need to have a much greater presence online. And also companies that perhaps used to sell via third parties and actually people that could just sell directly. So this is the growth um, excitement. And so that's a bit like Ocado. So everyone's yeah. thinking it's not, it's nothing to do with its joint venture with Marks and Spencer delivering food. It's all about Ocado's logistics system and helping other um, sort of grocery retailers to to be able to offer um, a very efficient online service, including logistics. The logistics is always is, is a big, very important part here. So, so there's lots of excitement about the hut because of this small growth bit. 
Um, the business is going to be valued at £4.5 billion. Pounds. And I've just seen um, some forecasts from an analyst who think uh, after it's flowed to the market, it's feasible in their eyes to suggest it could be worth north of £7 billion. Pounds. Now, that's uh, you know, it's very high expectation. So the, the IPO price is 36 times EBITDA. So that's the, your, your earnings before taking into account things like interest and tax um, and some other bits. So it's, it's already very, very highly valued. Um, and so it, and the idea that if it does get to, uh, you know, I think it's just about seven, seven odd billion pounds, then the chief executive is going to get a 700 million pound bonus. So this is the problem. Immediately, yeah. there's a very large list of red flags. So the chief exec is going to take a joint chief exec and chairman position, which whilst that's common in America, not common here, really. I mean, if you think about the role of the chairman is to keep the chief exec in order and make sure they're doing the right thing, making the right decisions and stuff. Chief exec is meant to be obviously running the business. Um, so it's, some people think those roles should absolutely not be combined. So you've got that issue, corporate governance issues around very large um, bonus here. Um, so just before the company floating, it's going to park all of its uh, property businesses um, into uh, sort of almost like a separate vehicle, which is going to be um, linked to or owned by the, the, the chief exec. And so he is essentially going to be collecting millions of pounds in rent every year from properties that are used by the business. Now, I haven't got the exact details here, but I imagine what he's going to be having to um, buy, buy those assets off the company and then lease them out. So um, there is also some questions being asked about the, the board of directors and how truly independent some of the people are on the board, because they all seem to have relationships with the business going back a number of years. Um, now, the, the, the chief exec, Matthew Moulding, I should, I should add, uh, give his name, he's also got a, a founder share, which means he can veto any takeover bids for three years. Um, so the business is not going to have enough shares in the public domain to qualify for um, FTSE inclusion. So the company, whilst it's, it looks you know, big, it could be in the FTSE 250 or FTSE 100 uh, over time, it won't qualify for it because it just doesn't have enough shares and issues, something called the free float. So you can see here, there's a picture forming of exciting growth story clouded in uh, you know, all kinds of things that trouble investors. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's not a new story. There is a track record there, but it's, it's still, although not a, kind of on certain measures, you could say it makes a profit, but it's still loss making essentially, isn't it? So um, beyond, you know, even just though, you know, those governance concerns that you, you outlined, it's that there's other reasons to be cautious, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to ask yourself, like, I, I want to consider investing in um, a growth business. So here's a company that's offering an opportunity for um, products in beauty and sort of um, bodybuilding area. But would I also be comfortable in putting money into business that also owns two cargo planes, I see. So <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just, it just seems um, like, it, I don't know whether this is rush to get it out. You know, tech is very much in fashion uh, yeah. and, and growth is in fashion. And here and is in fashion as well, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's so much, it, it's very much now it's very, um, on, on point in terms of what it's trying to do. But I, I just think that there's so many other issues, uh, particularly on the corporate governance side, which could trouble it. I mean, we've seen the negative reaction to Boohoo this year. It, it also came out with this uh, idea that, that, that um, some of its directors were going to get very large bonus if the share price hit a certain target. I mean, it's you could you could argue that companies are on the stock market uh, and they can use the shares as a way 
of incentivizing staff to to do a good job but i don't know it's just a scale of some of these awards just it rings alarm bells it rings alarm bells doesn't it because i think because partly because as well being incentivized on the basis of share price is not normally a good sign because that's not really how a business should be measuring its progress if you do the right things you you know you generate profit you 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 grow that will be reflected in share price the share price will take care of itself you shouldn't you know that shouldn't be the you know it should be a means to an end if you see what i mean yeah i mean it, it's it must be said to its credit this is a business that is employing lots of people in this country yeah. and it looks like it's going to be creating even more jobs so that really must be applauded um but it's just not quite um ticking all the boxes that i would uh, perhaps look for in a new business coming to well, say, in a freshly listed business um you know it, of, of this size you it's just so many ifs and buts but we'll see so it comes to the market very soon and you know there is a lot of excitement about it there's quite what, what's interesting is quite a few fund managers have already you know, said they're definitely committing to to taking part now even though the valuation is extremely high so obviously they they're taking a long-term view here um now you know if tech sector is wobbling in the us and if that's continuing i wonder whether that will cloud its stock market debut but um let's What's say on a normal yeah on a normal day um i think it might this might be grabbing some headlines based on you know the fact that you know, the first day of trading will be the first opportunity for the general public to show an interest in wanting to buy the shares um and certainly given the, the sort of the stuff i've been reading i think there is a lot of interest in it so i i imagine the hut is going to be a name that will appear on this podcast a number of times in the i think so yeah <laughs> i think so <laughs> moving beyond sort of individual stocks um and kind of taking things in a more of a personal finance direction um we regularly see banks launch new current account products but tsb's latest account has been getting publicity for all the wrong reasons dan can you tell us what's happened there well it, it's it's got this new current account, current account called Spend and Save. Um, and essentially, it's got some features intended to help people um, you know, develop good, good sort of uh, financial habits. So it's got some se separate savings pots you could put money aside um, for specific goals. Um, you can get set up text alerts where you know when your balance reaches a certain level. Um, you can do this automatic spending roundup so every time you, you go to the shops and you use a debit card it'll you'll put some some of the spare change into your savings account okay so this is this is nothing new but then i, I did come across a story in the mail on sunday where they report on an internal memo from tsb where one of the directors describes savings rates um as not being that important to savers and i thought that's quite interesting so it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds a bit counterintuitive but yeah so they're saying it's it they're saying the interest rate is the icing on top of the cake but the savings are the cake so that's in one way i think that's a yeah, that is a fair comment you've got to have the savings in order to earn that interest on top but it seems to be a strange way of trying to communicate to perhaps across the company that there's this new product coming out um and that the focus is on savings habit not the savings rate uh, if you if you're one of the millions of savers out there you've yeah. got money and you're desperate for decent returns you're thinking well, that's a strange attitude I, I i want to put my money in the bank and use the bank or go off and do something with it i.e you'll use it for lending to people i want a decent rate so absolutely I, I, yeah well it's not a room to say that but if we get you know a return of inflation then the value of those savings will will be eroded so you know if, if it if it isn't paying a decent rate yeah so I, I must emphasize this was an internal memo this is not part of our external marketing company no, but for sure. um but i was thinking about you know rates are they're the key incentive to save because if you've got rubbish rates 
then people won't be tucking money away. It really does rely on um, you know, either the government offering incentives like a tax break or, or, or perhaps the free money that you get with the lifetime ISA when, when you know, government matching some of your or, or giving bonus to, to what you're doing. Or, you know, it comes down to educational messages in schools. And we know that schools are not great on, or they certainly could do more on the personal finance yeah. side of things. Um, and in the workplace or the media. So it, it, you know, it, it's an interesting, it's a topic which we could, we could talk about for a long time. But I just thought it, it really caught my eye. I thought, that, um, and if, you know, maybe if any of the listeners want to uh, share their thoughts, uh, whether they agree or disagree about um, what they're saying, whether it's just the icing on the cake, um, you know, drop us a line at um, podcast at ajbell.co.uk. So this week I caught up with Andrew Vaughan from Free Spirit Fund uh, to find out how this little known investment fund has managed to be a top performer. So Andrew is the fund manager and we talked about how he finds investment opportunities. Um, and he talked about quite a few stocks uh, and they included Avon Rubber, EKF Diagnostics and Dot Digital. I, I think listeners will really like what Andrew has to say. Andrew, the Free Spirit Fund is ranked first in the Investment Association UK all company sector over three years. Can you tell us what's the secret of your success? Uh, indeed. Um, thank you, Dan. Um, yes, Free Spirit is, um, is currently the uh, number one performing fund in the UK all company sector. Um, it's, it's also number one over one year as well. Um, and interestingly, over one year, it's not just outperforming its sector, but it's um, outperformed um, the all share index, um, the small cap index and the mid cap index as well. So on, on every front, um, the fund has been on a bit of a roll. Um, so let me sort of give you an idea of where this performance is coming from. Um, the fund was established in 2017 and I would say straight away um, um, and ex um, express gratitude to Rosemary Banyard, who had the, the vision to set it up. Um, and gave it some very, very strong uh, foundations. Um, I was fortunate to, to work uh, with Rosemary on Free Spirit from very soon after the fund started, um, more than three years ago now. Um, but most of all, we've got a really strong, um, a really strong process, which we call business perspective investing. Um, I might sort of talk you through that a bit, a bit later. Um, so basically, there's a very strong investment process. Um, the other thing to say about our performance is um, it's, um, it's actually partly down to what we do not hold. Um, very, very selective about what kind of companies we go into. And if you look at um, where people have, investors have been really quite hard hit this year, it's in um, sectors like oil, um, oil and gas, banks, financials, hospitality, leisure, travel. Um, and I'm pleased to say that Free Spirits managed to sidestep these almost um, entirely. Um, and that's really, you know, we just haven't had um, that enormous downdraft that others have suffered. And that is thanks to the process which we run. Um, and then on top of that, I think the other factor to mention, um, there's probably two more things to say. One is we have a really big cash position at all times. This is a highly liquid fund. And um, that obviously um, helps us when markets uh, fall savagely as they did. We, you know, we, we were holding 20% cash um, when the markets turned down at the end of February. Um, but it also has enabled us to, you know, to buy when prices have been down, which we've done. Uh, we were buying in February and March. Um, and then I think the last thing you could um, pin the good performance on is, you know, the sector allocations we've got. We've got um, the biggest single sector is software and computer services, um, which obviously has been holding up extremely well. There's some really resilient businesses there that have continued and in fact have probably, if anything, strengthened uh, during the pandemic. Can you give me an example of some of the names? that perhaps have been the top performers, um, maybe maybe this year and maybe since the fund has started? Um, certainly, Dan. Um, if you look at the performance attribution um, since the fund started, actually there are three um, top contributors. Um, and uh, they're Games Workshop, um, Avon Rubber and EKF Diagnostics. Um, and if I just uh, briefly touch on those, um, I think uh, certainly in 2018, Games Workshop, uh, was the best performing share in the whole UK stock market. Um, you know, it's it's a, um, a company that's been in the fund since very you know it's it's very early days. Um, Avon Rubber um, is beginning to get better known. It's just gone over one billion pound market cap. It's made some acquisitions 
um, that's a, a been a very a really great business for the fund to have owned. Um, and then the other one to mention is EKF Diagnostics, uh, which is actually the fund's biggest holding, um, and it has become the fund's biggest holding, having been some way down the rankings um, in the portfolio um, earlier on. And this business um, has um, it's just continuing to innovate and just continuing to develop new streams of revenue and actually has also benefited from um, obtaining um, having contracts for manufacturing COVID um, testing kits as well. So uh, do you reckon you've got um, a different research process to a lot of other fund managers? Because obviously clearly you're doing something right to find good stocks. And um, we're certainly doing something different. Um, and in fact, I mean, part of our process is, is really to um, try to tune out of all of the noise that comes out of the city. You know, we just not, really trying to we really make a point of not getting drawn into i mean a lot of the brokers research you'll see it's all um predicated on very small um short-term um share price targets you know small upgrades and downgrades and forecasts and you know we try to step away from all of that um and identify really strong businesses but in essence i think where others um are doing sort of financial analysis and then uh, probably they may initially have screened for valuation i mean i think you know, which you know you know, they're looking for value primarily. Um, I would say we do things the other way around. Um, valuation is last, you know, we're looking first of all at great businesses. And the other thing I think that, that perhaps um, distinguishes our research from others is we, you know, a large part of our research is also, um, it's not just financial analysis, it is business analysis. You know, we really try to get under the skin of the businesses that we're, we're investing in, really find out about their relationships with customers, etc. And I think we go to a lot more depth there and the other area which I think is <clears throat> pretty unique to our research is that we um, put a lot of effort into understanding the, we, you could call it an economic um, filter of the businesses you know we look really carefully at who the competition are um, you know what um, threat we think there, there is of, of new competitors coming into the market all that sort of thing industry dynamics um, bargaining power of suppliers and customers all those sorts of things and I, I, I very, very rarely see reference to that sort of thing in, in other people's research. You say that obviously valuation to you is perhaps last on the list, but um, the idea if you're looking at a business first, does that not present a risk that you find something that looks interesting and you make up your mind thinking, yeah, I want to invest in this, and then you discover it's trading on a rich rating? Would you go ahead and still buy those shares um, in that situation, or would you be quite principled and say, "Sorry, it's just not the right price for us"? Yeah, that's no, a good, a good question, and um, I can see why you, why you're asking that. Um, it is a hazard of our research process that a lot of the effort that we do, that we make, um, ends up not translating into actionable investment ideas. Um, but actually, to us, there's no other way around it. Um, and so the answer is absolutely no, we won't um, buy something just because we feel we've done the work and, and therefore you know, we don't want to have wasted the effort that's gone in. That doesn't happen at all. If I can just sort of explain, um, our process is very much a, 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 has two very distinct stages to it. Um, and it, once we've done all the research I mentioned before, the financial analysis, the business analysis, economic analysis, then we halt and we stop. Um, and that, all that work is, then, um, is separate. From what we, you know, if we, we we ask ourselves questions at that stage, are we even going to proceed to valuation? And to do that, we have to have been happy with everything that we've we've seen so far. Um, and of course, the upshot of all of this is that um, quite often, when we then uh, do look at valuation, and then we compare that with what the price uh, what the market is asking us to pay to buy into these businesses, um, you know, quite often we find you know it's very important to go you know with a very clear in our head of what a business is worth before we see what the price is in the market. But it does mean, of course, that um, a lot of ideas, we're, you know, we've got companies that we want to buy, uh, we're waiting for that right opportunity to come along. So the answer is, you know, if, if the price isn't right, we've done the research, um, we just put it on a watch list and we're really happy to keep it there. And actually, it's, this has played out really well for us. Um, for instance, when the markets turned down very heavily in uh, March, uh, February, March this year, you know, we were ready with a watch list and with that cash pile I was talking about and Free Spirit was able to add new holdings as the market sold off. Um, so, um, yes, I hope that, I hope that um, explains that. Um, yeah. So, so I, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with um, Fundsmith Equity um, and how a couple of years ago it launched a mid-small cap version called Smithson because 
it found it was really hard to invest lower down the market cap spectrum without taking large positions. Um, now, you've got a sister fund called Buffettology, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's a significantly larger size. I was wondering, did they, did Buffettology get the same situation where it's found it, if it found any sort of smaller companies, it just couldn't take um, a sort of an appropriate position without being, being too dominant? Is that why Free Spirit Fund was launched? Okay, let me sort of give some colour here. I mean, the first thing to say is that um, when Free Spirit, at the time that Free Spirit was launched, you know, Buffettology was a much smaller fund. I mean, I think it was below 100 million pounds under management. It's now 1.3 billion. So actually, um, at the time when Free Spirit was born, um, this wasn't, there were, there were no such constraints on Buffettology because of its size. Uh, however, if you sort of fast forward to where, where we are today, I mean, Free Spirit, which um, is essentially an unconstrained fund and has that ability to, to invest across the market cap spectrum, does have a focus on, on um, small and mid caps. You know, majority of the portfolio is, is in these small and mid caps. Um, but it, it would be wrong to say, though, um, that, that you know, Buffettology, you know, Buffettology is also an all cap is an all cap fund and it Buffettology has many you know, great businesses that are small and mid caps. I think, um, I think perhaps the essence of what you're getting at is that um, it is now uh, more recently, um, now that Buffettology fund is the size that it's at, um, it is actually becoming constrained only actually at the very bottom end of the market cap spectrum. Um, certainly anything sort of, um, well, for instance, Free Spirit has two companies that are below 100 million pound market cap um, that would be too small for Buffettology now. But it would be wrong to say that um, Buffettology is no longer involved in, in, in small and mids, because it, it certainly is. Okay. Well, how are you finding it at the moment in terms of um, discovering good quality businesses on the UK stock market? It seems like if, if you say that you've got sort of a, um, the largest exposure to your portfolio is um, sort of software tech side of things. I mean, that, that sector is shrinking on the UK markets through takeovers and uh, we're not really seeing that many new businesses in that area float. So is your sort of pool of opportunities shrinking or does that just mean that you're looking at other sectors for, for new ideas? Okay. And um, I think <clears throat> a couple of things to say. I mean, one is um, that, that heavy weighting towards um, technology and you know, software and computer, which I mentioned, that hasn't come about because we've identified that sector and therefore that's where we think the weighting should be. It's actually the other way around. It's just how it happens to have shaken down. You know, we always start out um, looking for these strong economic moats and, and really great financial shapes. And it just happens to be that those have, um, you know, that they predominate, you know, that they proliferate within the soft, software and computer, computer services sector. So that's just happens to be why, you know, we've ended up with the weightings we have. Um, I would say that it is, um, it's not a problem finding good quality businesses. Um, it's more of a problem at the moment of finding um, good value businesses. And, you know, as I mentioned before with our research process, it does mean that a lot of our research work is, is not feeding through to actionable ideas in the portfolio. As I said, it's not a problem that, you know, that's going to, they're all going to be fall, they'll fall into place, you know, when, when the time is right. Um, on the technology thing, I, Perhaps, um, I know it's often said that the UK is, you know, is a laggard in this space. And, and I, mean, I think where it's, it's fair to say that we don't have any of the giant um, tech businesses that they have over in America. But, you know, but you know, that doesn't mean there aren't, op aren't opportunities in the UK market. There are plenty. And as you'll see, I mean, a small fund like Free Spirit has been able to find plenty of them. Um, these are great businesses. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we have seen some, some of our big um, listed companies uh, um, be removed from a London listing companies like Autonomy, for instance, um, and SoftBank has um, took out, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Arm, um, the uh, chip um, designing business a few years a few years back. Um, but we've got, you know, um, for instance, in the FTSE 100, there's Aviva, which is one of Free Spirits holding. That's in the FTSE 100. Um, it has a market cap um, of somewhere between sort of five and ten billion pounds. Um, just made a really big acquisition in the States. It's going to add sort of 50% to its market value. So I actually think, you know, there are some good good tech businesses coming through and, and Free Spirit's able to identify them and take part. Okay, what, so what else in your portfolio at the moment are you finding particularly exciting? Got a very exciting portfolio. 
Um, I could talk all day, but I'm um, very enthused about some of the holdings, but I'm going to just, just mention a few and, and, and why. I'm interested in business. This is a growth fund. I'm interested in businesses that can really scale their business, uh, perhaps without having to deploy much more capital. I can see a really great um, opportunity there. Um, Dot Digital is one of our holdings um, that can scale very rapidly. Um, it provides um, an email marketing uh, platform-based service and, you know, customers you know, it, can, it, it can potentially take on almost limitless number of customers on its platform. Um, innovation is something I'm really excited about, um, you know, really like to see in businesses. We've got, um, as I mentioned before, our largest holding, EKF Diagnostics. Um, it's involved with some advances in healthcare that are going to address some extremely large um, new markets. It's, um, it has a, a shareholding in the business called Renalytics AI, which is listed on, on AIM. Um, which is addressing um, chronic kidney disease, for instance, using, using um, artificial intelligence and things like that. Very exciting. Aviva, I mentioned before, um, with its recent acquisition. A um, couple of other things I want to touch on. Um, we've got companies that have intellectual property. Um, and this um, is intellectual property is a wonderful thing to have. It's, it's very, very difficult for others, others to replicate. Um, puts a great sort of moat around the business. Um, it also has a great financial shape. Um, we've got some companies where they've, you know, they've obviously invested money over the years to create content, uh, but that can now generate uh, revenue for many years to come with almost no cost attached to it. So these businesses can become real compounding machines. Um, with, um, Games Workshop, I mentioned before, is beginning to develop um, royalty revenues, uh, royalty income. Um, you know, moving into a new space, that's an entirely new stream of revenue that could potentially um, grow very nicely. And we've got Bloomsbury Publishing, um, which is, has enormous content, as you can imagine, uh, moving from printed to digital formats. Um, suddenly things like back catalogues, which previously had to be in print, suddenly are digital and they can be generating revenues all the time. And then um, I've just got one business, um, to, last one to mention, if I may, um, Avon Rubber. It's in the news today. Um, it's made a, a really smart, what looks to be like a really smart acquisition. Um, Avon Rubber, as I mentioned earlier, has been one of the best performing uh, holdings in Free Spirit. And um, it has divested its, um, its dairy business, which was a low margin business um, and had um, more up and down sales. Um, and what we're being left with is a, um, a business that makes respirators, um, mainly for military. Um, but it, you can imagine they're an ex they're extraordinary sort of with patent protection. It's a very, very difficult customer base to break into um, the US Department of Defense being the main customer. But the thing that's exciting about it is it's used that money, for, it is using that money um, lined, lined up to come in from the dairy business sale. Um, and it's made some extraordinary acquisitions that just fit so well with the product it already has. I mean, it was making respirators. It's in the last 12 months, it's acquired a business that makes um, helmets that fit together with the respirators. Um, of course, the same customer needs both. Um, and in the helmets, it bought this business called Ceridine in the States that literally makes this sort of hard shell around the helmet. But today, Avon has announced the acquisition of Team Wendy, um, which makes all the internal parts um, of a helmet, the bit that sort of protects the skull and protects the brain. And, you know, again, incredibly sort of technical, innovation-based. Uh, and, of course, it makes such sense to bring these businesses together. So I'm very excited about that, too. Okay. Well, so I'll just just one more thing I wanted to ask was about, you mentioned you've got, uh, you like to having high levels of cash. Um, do you think the markets have perhaps got ahead of fundamentals and that we could actually see another sort of pullback in the markets soon? And obviously, if you had cash, that would give you opportunities. But do you think that might happen this year oh and um, it's almost you're almost asking me to tell me to tell you what the weather's going to be like. <laughs> um the answer is um it will change and um you know if you don't like what's going on today you know the market will be completely different anyway um you know one thing i really don't ever do is um market timing and i think actually if you look um you know the reason for that is you know we've, we've tried you know we've got cash you know, we prepare for the worst. We've got these incredibly resilient businesses with great balance sheets. Um, but I don't, you know, we, you know, when we, when we um, assess a company, we're really looking at where we think it's going to be in five or 10 years time. And that really means, you know, tuning out and not being, you know, put off by, you know, potential um, 
risk of a market correction, which is just always there. And I would have thought is, um, you know, with every day that the bull market advances, you know, that the, the prospect for correction comes ever closer. But I, I could, if I just could um, steer you to, um, I mean, what's happened this year in the market, you look at that savage sell-off. I mean, the shortest, sharpest uh, bear market perhaps in history. But, you know, can you imagine if you tried to sort of be smart about that and trade getting in or out of that? You, know, you, you could have been whipsawed um, in a really in a really damaging way, um, and so you know, free spirit just stuck to its knitting. Um, you know, and um, it, you know, it has been an extraordinary two months, twelve months. But I think you know the fact that we've remained number one throughout this in a very very competitive sector um, is down to this business perspective investing process we have. And it provides this wonderful anchor line, you know, that we've always got there, regardless of what markets throw at us. Brilliant. Angie, thank you ever so much for your time. Brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. That was a great interview with Andrew. Um, I hope our listeners also enjoyed it. Remember, if you'd like us to interview someone in particular, just, again, drop us an email at that email address, podcast at ajbell.co.uk, and we'll do our best to get them on the show. So just before we finish up, I just want to ask you, Tom, about the latest news on the mortgage market as the Bank of England has got some new figures out, which suggests it's becoming harder for people to borrow money to buy a house or flat. So what's going on? Yeah, it seems like there's an element of self-preservation here on the part of lenders. They don't want to be in a situation where they're stuck with a lot of people who can't repay their debts heading into a recession when that becomes more of an issue. People are losing their jobs, find it more difficult to to keep up repayments. Um, if you look at the situations sort of in the last few years, mortgage availability has been incredibly high, you know, in relative terms. And the competition in this market meant, you know, the people were being off very generous rates and um, borrowing at, at very generous rates, even if they had quite modest deposits. And that looks like it's changing, at least in the near term, which clearly, you know, that has implications for individuals who are trying to get on the housing ladder. But it, it also has implications for the wider property market. You know, it has a knock on effect if you don't have as many people able to get you know, into the housing market because they can't get a mortgage. And for for the house builders, obviously, who, who are kind of a big participant in the, the property market, and as we sort of discussed earlier on, have other headaches to contend with too. So thanks a lot for listening this week. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, the iPhone podcast app, or Podbean. Just search for Money and Markets. Uh, please do tell your friends and family about the podcast. It's always helpful if you can leave a review. So Tom did such a fantastic job. We're going to let him back on the podcast next week. So make sure you listen in. See you later. Goodbye. Look forward to it. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.